repeat the offering that uh, Gulu made, I would like to invite you to uh, try a kind of practice of being embodied, of being kindly oriented, uh, even under these circumstances. And that's the development of our practice as we find ourselves in many different contexts. And we learn that in each context, we know how to be oriented in a productive way or in a way that we don't create uh, suffering or set ourselves up for suffering. So during this Dharma talk, I invite you to take a posture that's kind to your body, to breathe in and out. Remember that you have a body. And that's actually something we forget, even though we are living in this animal all the time. So see if you can uh, take in these words uh, as a contemplation Uh, as a present time invitation for your heart to be uh, oriented in the content of what we'll talk about. But uh, see if you can also invite a mode of listening that's patient and present, embodied, kindly oriented. Tonight we're at uh, the last night of this nine-day loving-kindness retreat, which means that we're all on the eve of a change, a change of context. And many people are actually staying on for the second retreat, and some of you are about to go home. So I'd like to talk some about going home, but also about what it's like to keep developing beautiful qualities of heart. And in any context we find ourselves in, how can we Uh, take a quality of heart and learn to develop it. So the four Brahmaviharas is uh, central to what we've been exploring on this retreat and seeing how we can apply the heart with these four tones as we've gone through the many many different changing phases of the day and day by day. So there are many ways into this uh, topic, but Um, One thing just to say broadly is that uh, when I came into this uh, Western form of this meditation tradition, it was at a time when we we had some very fierce teachers come through and they really wanted us to look at the, uh, the flaws of the mind, the flaws of the heart. And so I got very good at tracking how many subtle and powerful flaws that I had and not to be defeated by them. And then every now and then we get to practice some loving kindness. But the predominance of what I heard, and also could just be the way my mind heard it, was that this mind had all these inherent um, problems. And if you could study them and uproot them and challenge them, you wouldn't suffer as much. but there wasn't as much talk about the beautiful qualities of the heart and what it's like to develop them. At least that's what it felt like when I first came into this uh, tradition. It felt like there was a phase going on and later it counterbalanced. Um, so I came into uh, understanding that there were beautiful qualities of the heart pretty late in to my relationship to this tradition. And it's kind of, it might say something about my self-relationship that <laughs> I was willing to stay in a tradition that um, had me measure my flaws to ever increasing degrees of subtlety. And they're like, yes, that's the path for me. (laughs) I came, I went to two different monasteries when I went to Burma. And the second monastery, they, they still had that framing that you had to understand how your mind was setting itself up for suffering. But there was a a whole different conversation about the beautiful qualities of mind that they had to be developed so that you could actually uh, see some of the ways that our minds uh, create trouble for itself by getting bored or restless or caught in its own delusions, its own fantasies, uh, cultivating resentments, thinking that that's an empowering act. Um, So the second monastery um, was run by a teacher named Pao Xaida. Uh, so it's called the Pauk Monastery, and that's where I met the, um, the nun who changed my life, Satrita Pankara. And what I loved about that monastery is they actually started showing me beautiful qualities of mind, and they had me track them 
and be as familiar with them as I'd become microscopically aware of all these little flaws in my mind. And all the time, beautiful qualities had been developing, but my attention was, uh, was being trained to look for a little bit of sloth and torpor or a little bit of restlessness. And so I wasn't as familiar with these beautiful qualities that were there. Um, so that's what we've been exploring in this retreat. Um, somewhat working with the difficulties that come up, but also developing loving kindness and compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, equanimity, patience, courage, um, a heart that's ethically attuned. So there are so many beautiful qualities of heart. What I love about this particular meditation retreat is we get to spend the time uh, honoring these powerful, boundless qualities and developing them and welcoming them to flourish as much as they can. When uh, I was in the teacher training <clears throat> uh, to learn to teach here at Spare Rock, Nushika um, was in my training. And one time we went to see a teacher named Gil Fronsdale. And one of the things he said that really shocked me, and I remember what he said, was he said, sometimes in the morning, it's more important to recover your intentions than it is to have a sitting practice. And that shocked me because so much of this, um, of what's happening here in the West with meditations, we have a lot of love for the sitting and we really honor the sitting our formal meditation practice, and then the other parts of the practice seem to um, be what you do when you can't sit. Uh, so there's this strong emphasis that this is where the transformation happens. But then it's hard to integrate that if that's how you think, that that's what you think is important. It's hard to live that way other than to live permanently on retreat. And so when he said, recover your intentions in the morning when you wake up, I started doing that and realized that that's what happens on retreat also because of the context of being here. Our priorities on the retreat are really reinforced that being present, being aware of what's happening moment by moment, and also inviting uh, metta or calmness if we're distracted or waking ourselves up if we're drowsy. But all that effort has a framing around it. And that's one of the things that we become disconnected from when we leave retreat is the context that's supportive for meditation practice. So when uh, Gil um, pointed that out, uh, he made more evident to me that um, that was an important part of the morning. It might happen if you have a formal practice in the morning. Through that practice, you might reconnect with your heart and then start your day through that reconnection. But some people sit <clears throat> and they clock in and clock out, but they haven't actually gotten in touch with their values in the morning, which means the hecticness of the day defines you. And then next thing you know, you're just trying to keep up with a busy day, but it doesn't feel connected to your deeper heart's values. So whether you do have a morning practice or not, um, there is a simple morning practice which you can add in, and it'll actually empower if you have a formal practice or not. So this is something I do with my students when we're looking at bringing the practice deeply into our daily lives. And that's this handout here um, that you all have. And so what I recommend, unless you have the intuition to do otherwise, is to fold it in half. In the morning, before you uh, get too caught up in the day or before you do your sitting practice, it really is helpful to have a touchstone that you can be oriented towards. And this might be one of them, this she could do it, but also the uh, loving kindness, so, uh, the Karaniya loving kindness meditation that we've been doing is another one. It has so many good pointers in it that if you just read that, it would reconnect you to, this is what should be done. Uh, be straightforward, gentle in speech, humble, not conceited. And so you also could do this. You could read through that. And every morning that would be 
a compass heading, that would be a guide that would stay with you through the day. But uh, so is this particular sheet. So what it has is the three refuges. And you also could make up your own way in if you find that these weren't uh, the way that you tuned into the refuges. But taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, doing that early in the day sets up what you're going to take refuge in as you go through the day. And it's not your coffee, your cell phone, and your clothing. (laughs) Or uh, whatever fashion choice you've made. Um, Get that compass heading, and then everything you do is held in a context that maps maps onto your values. Taking the five precepts each day reminds you that some of the worst suffering we have and the way that we get entangled in the worst suffering is when we transgress on these five precepts. So it could be just as important as you go through the day to be present and also to be following these precepts. You're more likely going to follow the precepts if you're present, and it's easier to be present if you're following the precepts because you don't have as many doubts and confusions that you're working out. Uh, So they're very supportive. And then I have uh, vows, and I call them program vows because I use this when I'm putting people through a long program. But the first vow is to use every moment of each day without exception to cultivate clear seeing, wise perspective, renunciation, kindness, and compassion. And there's a teaching about that, um, though that's the development of wisdom and make sure that your intentions are not about trying to accumulate where you can't. And then to be oriented towards kindness and compassion, that's an orientation as you go through moment by moment. And vow to identify and transform the conditions of your personal and collective suffering. To have that as a vow that you're going to seek out, why am I suffering? There's the face value story, but is that really why I'm suffering? Is this traffic really why I'm suffering? Is this argument I'm having really why I'm suffering? How much of what I'm really suffering is that I wish things were different? And so if you're upset by something in your household, something in your community, something happening nationally or globally, how much of that is actual upset from that event and how much of it is you really wish things were different and it's that wish that actually is multiplying the suffering. But what I really want to focus on tonight um, is on the left side called, I'm sorry, the right side. Um, called the, the teachings of the Ten Paramis. And we've actually mentioned these Ten Paramis in different ways throughout the week or the nine days that we've been here. Um, this is a particular teaching. It's a particular list. Uh, ten may be too many. So sometimes people just take one or two at a time and don't try to work on all ten. But like the Brahma Viharas, it's a system that works well together to think about these 10 beautiful qualities of heart and to develop them and then see if you can have them harmonize with each other. And then if you can actually, in the same Brahma Vihara model, have them all inform each other and support each other like a 10-person choir would, where one takes a lead in a certain context, but it's backed up by the other nine. And the Brahma Viharas, we use that model that one Brahma-vihara may take the lead in a certain context, but the other three are nearby. So with that framing, the ten paramis, um, these are considered qualities that are nearly universal in their, um, in their ability to uh, assist or help um, meet a present moment uh, with a beautiful quality of heart. So these are near... Other beautiful qualities of heart tend to be a little bit more um, contextual by what's happening, but these are considered more universal. So there's dana, um, generosity or acts of service, um, sila, ethical conduct, ethical attunement, being oriented towards harmlessness, nikama. Uh, again, these are the old uh, Pali words and a few English translations. Nikama is renunciation or release. 
Panya is wisdom or understanding. Virya is energy or courage. Kanti is patience or endurance. Satya is truth or honesty. Metta, friendliness, kindness. Aditana is the, uh, the power of heart to be determined or resolved or to have a sense of your, your vow, uh, that strength to stay true to your, to your values. And upekka, equanimity and non-reactivity. So if you uh, look over the retreat, you'll find that these 10 have actually been talked about in various ways throughout the retreat. So Bonnie was talking about sila a lot last night when she talked about uh, hiri and otapa, these ways of being ethically attuned to your personal values and to collective values, learning what transgression feels like, learning to be oriented towards uh, being harmless. Um, we uh, Also Bonnie talked earlier about uh, patience and endurance. We've been talking all week about metta and we just recently started talking more uh, formally about equanimity and the attitude of non-reactivity, the ability to see complex things or to see the truth without having an immediate reaction, intimacy with the way things are. This word aditana, a second from the bottom, uh, is the ability to be determined or resolved. It might be a very specific resolution or it might just be the, the heart's orientation towards its values and it won't compromise because it's true to itself. So here's a system of 10 and uh, you can read books on all 10, how they work together. There's a great book by a teacher named Ajahn Suchito called uh, Crossing the Flood. And it's one of the best books on working with these 10 beautiful qualities of heart and how they work together to assist each other. The couple I wanted to talk tonight about um, are the first three about generosity, ethical attunement, and renunciation. And how metta practice, which is also one of these paramis, helps us with our suffering, both in the present moment as we have been going through the retreat, but as we go on to other contexts, how we can let metta be a lead factor or be a very supportive factor depending on the context. Because of the retreat uh, culture and the way that we practice, we haven't had, we've tried not to have interactions with each other and that will sit collectively for nine days together. But we let each person have their own personal relationship to themselves and be protected so that they don't have to compromise that to be social. So if someone were to be crying, you could send them loving kindness, but you'd let them have that experience because it's part of their self-intimacy. But outside of the retreat context, we can be much more interactive. You want to be attuned with your generosity, so it actually is helpful. But it's a, it's a large part outside of silent retreats of how we cultivate our well-being. This word dana um, is any movement, any action, internal as reflection or external as actual actions that improves well-being. So I might improve your well-being by giving you uh, gifts of chocolate. And it's like, yeah, little bits of Donna. I think about your well-being, chocolate comes to mind, and I spread chocolate amongst. And then some people don't like chocolate, so I pay attention. And I improve my Donna. It's like, I want your well-being. I don't want to just give you chocolate. I want it to actually improve your well-being. Some people are allergic, they don't like chocolate. So I tune in, how can I really help with your well-being? Like what's a gift that if, I, if my heart's oriented, what occurs to me that I could develop? And this is a boundless quality of heart, our generosity, our uh, opening up and taking interest in other people's well-being and our own well-being, and then putting in some effort to cultivate that. 
So there's resource dana where you might give uh, food or you might give um, uh, uh, gifts that are helpful like socks. <laughs> uh, you can also do acts of service, like uh, drive a friend to the airport or volunteer somewhere. Um, your work may be your dana. Your work might have income connected to it, but the income is only partly why you do it. It's also the way that you like to be of service in the way you're trying to help the world. So once it become, once metta becomes action or compassion becomes action, in that becoming action, it becomes dana. So dana is the heart that is actively caring and actively trying to promote well-being. So uh, if you take the retreat culture as what's most important about uh, waking up, it doesn't have a lot of active dana in it because we're sitting and we're trying to be attentive of our own experience. But once you leave retreat, dana actually becomes one of the, the more important lead factors. And so dana plays a kind of a supportive role here, but the choir changes when you leave retreat practice and actually doing acts of kindness and consideration can become your lead factor. So how do you drive? How do you relate to others when you get on public transportation? Are you trying to just take care of yourself? Or do you have an eye open to how can we all do this uh, well? Am I thinking about people's welfare uh, when I'm on public transportation? Or am I just thinking about myself? Or when driving in traffic, do I become self-oriented? Or can I think more globally about all our welfare? So when doing loving kindness practice and driving, you can wish people well, but if it doesn't change your behavior, then you think you're loving people, but you're still in maybe a me first or me only mind. But how can you drive with acts of generosity? I find that I'm, I'm surprisingly challenged with this in traffic, as traffic is like the slowly boiling frog, <laughs> doesn't know that it should jump out of the pot. The traffic in the Bay Area has gotten just ever so worse every, as the months have gone on. And I think I'm keeping up with it, but if I really look at it, I'm kind of frustrated. And in that frustration, uh, there's an attachment to want to be able to drive like I used to, but I can't do that anymore. I'm, you know, sort of unconsciously attached to how much time I think it should take for, to get from one place to another. And then other people are in my way. Like uh, Nushka said, you are the traffic. <laughs> it's not that there is traffic around you, you are the traffic. And so if I can remember this before I actually start uh, interacting with others, and I remember this as a value, then I'm more likely to act upon it. But if my mind gets away from me, it will already start to get, feel like I have a lot to do today. I can't also think of other people. That gets burdensome. So Donna, you can see people who are dutifully generous, but their heart's not behind it, but they have at least, I will be generous. Um, I can call myself out that when I go over to other people's houses, I usually just show up and I see if another person show up and they brought flowers or they brought food. And I was like, oh, I should have done that. Um, it's not how my heart is oriented around a thing, Donna. So I often have learned to practice this and to think ahead. It's actually nice to show up and offer something. Um, but I realized that I'm, what I am generous in is in quality of attention. So that's something that I, I give people. And it's a little bit more organically how my heart wants to be generous because um, I'm, not so in, I'm not so oriented oriented towards things. Like when people give me things, it, it doesn't actually increase my sense of well-being um, uh, if it's just sort of trinkets. But other people really like getting trinkets and it's not for me. Bonnie's really generous, and so not that Bonnie gives trinkets, she, but she's just incredibly generous. And so whenever I teach a retreat with Bonnie, 
There's so many great snacks. <laughs> it's like, wow, this is great. I should think ahead like this and get the uh, high-grade, healthy cheddar cheese popcorn. It's just a good thing to have around. Like, I should learn to think this way. It's really fun. But Bonnie delights in generosity. I mean, it's almost unstoppable. And I think Bonnie sometimes has to is working on how how do I relate to this power of Donna and the joy of Donna, and does it actually make sense to put that much time into the joy? But it's so as I'm learning a lot uh, from Bonnie, and seeing that happiness is like yeah, it's just getting popcorn. I could think to do that, but it makes everybody so happy, and it's not sugary like chocolate. It's like wow, I, my mind would not have come up with that, but when seeing how happy it was, that's great. And she brings chocolate, and she likes uh, uh, mochi, and um, and then she also is very generous with her attention, and it's a lot of joy. So uh, Bonnie is one of my teachers in Donna and the joy of Donna, of Donna, and <laughs> and sometimes if I if I haven't done a lot of loving kindness practice. I will do it because I know that it's a good thing to do, but I don't do it as joyfully as I see Bonnie do it. And I was like, oh yeah, it's joyful to do this versus just like it's appropriate to be generous. (laughs) (laughs) Then there are other forms of generosity that are a little bit more of a stretch. So it's not just a little bit of well-being, but how do we actually create great well-being? And so Spirit Rock, its entire mission is to promote radical well-being. And all the teachings are to promote well-being. And the teachers are teaching uh, with their love of what they want to help people understand these teachings. And so Donna, this generosity, this movement towards well-being, and not just uh, momentary well-being, but well-being that propagates, well-being that grows, uh, and studying what is real happiness, and how can we get going in that direction so that we end up not with temporary happiness that fades, but an increasing sense of happiness. And that's the entirety of the Buddha's teaching, is to wind up uh, with all all the suffering that can be reduced, reduced, and the suffering that's left over to be accommodated and to be held with compassion. So uh, those of you who are going on retreat, uh, on for another nine days, you'll probably stay in the retreat mode, which is your practice is generous for other people because it creates the field. Every time you do walking meditation versus taking a break, you inspire somebody else to do their own practice, and then we don't feel so alone. We may still feel weird, but we don't feel alone in being weird. <laughs> I got my mom to do a weekend retreat, and uh, after I said, how'd you like it? And she said, I really didn't like that zombie walking. <laughs> and I said, did you try it? She said, no, I, that's when I walked, I just went for a walk or I drank tea, and I was like, oh, that's half the retreat. <laughs> And then five years later, there came up again. I said, yeah, I remember that retreat. Like, what did you do when you were sitting? So I didn't do the sitting either. That was, <laughs> that was painful and boring. And what did you do? It was like, I walked in the woods and I drank some tea. And, and I, I read the things on the wall. And I was like, oh my God, you didn't do either of them. <laughs> no wonder it didn't really do much for you. <laughs> So uh, it's, it's kind of a nice thing that there is this culture of generosity, this value of generosity. But as soon as we break silence, and those of you who experimented with that, the whole motivation of speaking could be guided by kindness, but also does this promote well-being? It's kind in its intention, but I'm also going to scan for, does this improve my well-being, and does this improve the well-being of the person I'm talking to? And so generosity ends up being, it comes from the choir from playing a back role to playing a very four role. And a lot of what you do, feeding yourself, taking care of yourself, 
navigating other people with kindness and generosity becomes a lead factor of what daily life is like. And then there's larger scale dana where you look at what is the, the system that we're in? What's the culture that we're in? And is the culture unhealthy? And is there a way I could participate to create more healthy culture? So that becomes a large view on what dana and service could look like. When I was in college, um, in the 80s, there was a certain type of environmentalism that was strong, and there was a lot of anti-nuclear work, and there was a lot of nuclear testing done in Nevada. So I used to go two or three times a year to the Nevada nuclear test site and participate in these nonviolent uh, protests towards the nuclear testing. And while doing that, I learned a lot about the fact that the nuclear testing was happening on Western Shoshone land, and people in the Western Shoshone tribe were being slowly irradiated by the gases that were leaked out from the testing and the way the radiation got into the soil and got into the water. And then those uh, people who were downwind of the test site also had an increase of uh, cancer rates and leukemia. And so it became uh, an important part of my caring for the world that I would go and try to have some impact on a more global system of suffering. The fact that we were generating nuclear weapons and that made somebody else need to generate nuclear weapons and they were poisoning their indigenous people. It was the Soviet Union and in Kazakhstan they were doing a lot of testing and a lot of indigenous people in that area were also being uh, irradiated and having high cancer um, rates. So <clears throat> you can participate in your own well-being, how you care for yourself. You can participate in the well-being of the people you live with in your neighborhood. You can participate in the well-being of the people you work with, people right around you that you're driving with or in public transportation to work or to other events. But it's also a great generosity to start looking at what is the system I'm involved with and what suffering does it create and is there a way to promote well-being? And that's something I would love for our tradition also to be known for, not just that we have this powerful, silent uh, meditation form, but then when we're not doing this form, that we were also known for our generosity and our courage to engage the world. Um, it's not, a, there's a, there's a generality which is not accurate, but it's also not completely inaccurate, that we put a lot of time in our tradition in this meditative form, but not so many people have a profound engagement with the world. And that can be a slight misunderstanding that the way to be free is to be calm, and to be calm you have to be a little wary of being agitated. That it's a beautiful quality of heart to engage in generosity, and it wakes you up, and it motivates you to participate in the world. And if we get a little too retreat-oriented, we can get a little bit delicate. And in that delicacy, we, it, it's stirring to engage the world with your values. But then there's a disempowerment that comes from not engaging the world. So how could you? How could you uh, know people better in your neighborhood. I moved from one neighborhood with, where the value in the neighborhood was, don't bother me, I won't bother you. And it was kind of sad that that was sort of like the attitude. And I didn't feel like I could change that because I moved in. That was sort of the dominant attitude. Then I moved to another place. Um, and there was a place that had two block parties a year and everybody knew each other's birthday and you just walk across the street and it's like, wow, this is such a better, fun neighborhood. Like people actually talk to each other. And that's, I was kind of transient in both communities so I couldn't have a big impact on the overall structure. But I saw the benefit of actually thinking globally, collectively about everyone's welfare and the types of relationships that creates versus pulling back
So the second quality, sila, <clears throat> dana and sila are, are two uh, qualities that work really beautifully together. Sila understands harm and tries to do harm reduction or bring harm to zero. And that's how it promotes well-being, is it's attuned to where is harm happening and how can I intervene upon that harm. So first we look at our own actions and make sure we're governing ourselves with this ethical attunement. So we don't say harsh, hurtful things, or if we do, we try to amend afterwards. We don't lie and get people confused about what the truth is. So we have the courage to, to seek ways of being honest and being kind. Uh, having awareness of where harm is happening and intervening upon harm is the development of the second beautiful quality, sila. When I was uh, a monk in Burma, mo- there are the 227 uh, precepts, but they're really the five precepts and then developed with high sensitivity in a lot of different contexts. But it's still uh, about not causing physical harm, not letting greed get out of hand, and not betraying the trust of relationships, being careful how you speak. But I was a little more interested in the meditation, and so when I ordained, I was shocked at how much time I had to spend learning all these precepts of being a fully ordained monastic. And it seemed like it was sort of taking me away from where I wanted to be. And I didn't realize how elaborate the, the system of ordination was. But I, you know, I trusted it, but I was still shocked by it. When I was doing walking and sitting meditation, the 227 precepts basically take care of themselves. But as soon as you have an interaction with somebody, it's not just about being mindful and kind. There's a lot of sensitivity into ways you might be starting the ball rolling that causes harm. So the very mode of communication you have and what you talk about has to be put through a filter of, is this being influenced by greed or by hatred or confusion? Is this going to be um, harmful to the person I'm talking to or to myself? And that ends up keeping your heart from getting so entangled in pain and then resentment and then complications of relationships to have a high integrity in not wanting to harm yourself or others. And then it's taken to a very high degree so that all known living beings won't be harmed by you. And so it's nice to have it not be 90% of the beings because then there's a, there's a shade of gray. You just make it all beings. So there, um, there are these uh, rain barrels that collect water. And when the dry season comes, you just fill them up with uh, tap water or hoses. But that's where the mosquitoes breed. So you put nets over it so you can pull the net off and but every now and then the mosquitoes get in there. And if, mosquito, if there's mosquito larva in your water, it's your responsibility to get a little tiny net and to scoop them out and try your best not to harm any of them and then transfer them to some other water place. And like, these are the mosquitoes that are gonna bite me later. But I'm, I'm still loving them because, and the nice thing about that is it, it, it makes it so clear that you never get to justify hate or harm. It's like, oh, I get a pass on mosquitoes because, right? It's like, no, not even them. If you transgress on mosquitoes, you have to confess it to another monastic and figure out how else could I have done that so that I didn't hurt them. One time I went from the monastery into the city with a friend from the monastery and we had to do some passport stuff. We were sleeping in the same room and just as we turned the lights off, I heard mosquitoes around my ear. And I thought, okay, he's falling asleep and I have to get them out of the room. I don't want to be bitten. And so this is I was thinking that he turned on the light and we both went into our bags. We both pulled out little clear plastic cups. And without really communicating to each other, we started going around the room, capturing the mosquitoes, <laughs> putting them outside and putting a towel so they couldn't come back inside. And I still remember, I was like, wow, I knew somebody who that was their level of attunement to not cause harm. 
And he could have so easily, it would have been easier to slap them and just go back to bed. And I was so moved to be around another person who's going to put in that much effort not to transgress and cause harm. That's one of the things I love about uh, teaching here at Spirit Rock, because as I get to meet people who have become teachers, I'm so moved by the degree at which it becomes joyful and an understanding that it's necessary for your own peace of mind that you not be drawn into harmful actions. And it's a shortcut of impatience often that we go into harmful speech or harmful actions. It's easier to be harmful and move past something. But if you commit to not harming, you carry the stress of why you want to harm in the first place and it forces you to investigate it. It's like you pick up this burning coal and you're not allowed to throw it at somebody, but you look at it and it's like, wow, this really hurts. And it would be easier to say the harsh thing, be easier to lie and get away with uh, a momentary duck of responsibility. But in feeling the sila integrity of uh, my, my friends and colleagues, it's so moving to see somebody else carry the torch uh, with their own fiery, devoted commitment. Um, it's really beautiful. So not, ju- not just generating well-being, but to take on the, um, the nobility of not causing harm and to take interest in how harm is happening and to see if we can create a different system, a different way to not cause harm. One of the things that Spirit Rock uh, had for a long time is an unconscious dominant culture that mirrored uh, a kind of a loosely progressive sense of the larger dominant culture. And yet it was harming and excluding and taxing uh, people who weren't like that dominant culture when they came in. So those people who are not white, those people who are not straight, those people who are not able-bodied, those people who are not economically privileged, uh, all the ways that our society has a norm that ends up putting the stress, uh, ends up betting, uh, benefiting people who have um, access to that, uh, that privilege, they get to coast. And then people who don't have that privilege carry a tremendous amount of stress and, uh, and pain around that social structure. So Sparrow had a value of being uh, open and available to all beings, but not a lot of consciousness that even though that was our mission, there was this repeated uh, white, straight, dominant culture and so there was that dominant culture saying, yeah, we, our doors are wide open, so it must be that only white straight people want to come to Spirit Rock. Or a few people will come in, but not as many as you might think if the doors were really wide open. So in thinking about sila and ethical attunement, there's your personal relationship, there's the interpersonal relationship, but also there's the systemic institutional level or there's the greater system and how do we intervene upon that when we recognize the system is actually causing harm. And so you have to be able to understand where that, where the system is operating. And so I had the value of this, but I I didn't have traction on noticing how my own mind was participating in these systems. And through steady work, I began to see white preferencing. Now, being working as hard as I had up to that point, I would have thought almost every decision I have goes through a filter of is this causing harm. But having the privilege, I also had the, uh, the misattunement. And because I didn't have it uh, under view, I couldn't see how often, when I was in a chain of decision-making, how often those decisions wanted to make it easier for white people, or easier for straight people, or easier for able-bodied people, or easily for economically privileged people to participate in the system I just created. And through not wanting to cause harm and wanting to promote the greater well-being that's possible, 
that became uh, an urgency to study that. And I'm lucky to be in an institution that I'm not alone in doing that, that there are many people working to wake up to uh, how are we creating the system and can we see the harm and can we study how that harm is being created? And then can we skillfully intervene upon that system? So Spirit Rock is a work in progress, um, but it is uh, committed to that investigation and committed to studying uh, harm reduction and hopefully uh, harm elimination. And that's an outcome of sila. And once you know, once you see the harm, it hurts actively to be participating in it. So then you're motivated, one from your own distress, but also from the distress of others, not to participate in a harming system. Then what are we going to do? Being sensitive hearts and knowing about large, uh, stressful um, systems that we're part of. And if, you know, what do we do about climate change? And we have 12 years, so scientists say, out of just dutiful sila, we might change our behavior. But when sila is backed up by um, courage, and it's backed up by loving kindness, backed up by compassion, in that heart, you might find that there's more motivation to change the behavior outcome of how we are participating in a system that is so transforming our global climate. That's where I wanted to get to the third of, the, of this list, Nikama. It's often translated as renunciation but in it, that's more of a training and more of a, um, a way to access Nikama. But Nikama, when it's in its beautiful, boundless capacity, it's not that it rejects and lets go and renounces everything. It doesn't try to accumulate. The heart of Nikama doesn't need to accumulate and doesn't need to hold on and doesn't need to grasp. So another powerful thing about loving kindness practice is you start to learn that there is a different type of happiness and well-being that doesn't come from accumulation, that doesn't come from solidification or ownership. That type of thinking is one of the reasons we're exhausting our planet uh, and the resources on it is because we're addicted to behavior of consumption If you just, through willpower, renounced consumption, it might feel burdensome and dutiful and necessary, but it's wearing because it's coming more from, I'm just going to do the right thing. I have to consume less. I have to produce uh, less of these greenhouse gases. I want to produce less plastic. I want to relate to the environment uh, in a more conscious way. But on this retreat, what you can taste that's so incredibly radical is once you're through the first couple of days that the mind and heart is transforming itself, you start to know and you start to intuit there's a deeper happiness that doesn't come through the consumption of material goods or the consumption of events but a heart that knows how to flow through a greater range of experiences and have a kind of well-being even though you're going through uh, fatigue or even though you're going through an emotionally difficult time. You actually don't need to go consume something or distract yourself. Your heart actually can grow in capacity to be uh, less consumptive. And our world needs us, especially developed uh, people from so-called developed countries, uh, we need to consume less. But if you just consume less, it can feel burdensome. But if you know that there's another type of well-being that you can access, then the desire to participate in mass consumption 
falls away because it's agitating to consume. It's agitating unless you're uh, doing it through generosity, <laughs> which is not so much about consumption, it's more about sharing. But uh, one of the things I think that artisan can really show people in a short amount of time is that you can be perfectly well breathing. That if you train in that, it might seem impossible before you come to your first silent retreat, and the first two or three days may not confirm that breathing is, an act, is a way to feel content. But caring for another being, caring for yourself, and just walking back and forth on a sunny day can show you a greater reliable fulfillment than ordinary worldly orientation would show you, which does lead towards I'm happy, I'm happier when things are more pleasant, I need to find a way to make things more pleasant, how can I do that? And then people go towards uh, managing their world versus being content within the world as it is. And that, uh, and that like equanimity takes some wisdom to find the right relationship to it. Some people are just learning how to love themselves and care for themselves and they come to renunciation and it feels like, oh, it's such an abandonment of myself to start renouncing things that, that uh, give me security or give me well-being. But it's the mind as it learns, and it's best if it actually learns this versus just being forced to let go. But if it learns that holding on is stressful and the ability to be more fluid as you go through time so the caring heart with a heart that knows how to be oriented and warm itself with loving kindness, the amount that we consume to be happy is greatly reduced. And if there is ever a time that we are at a threshold where mass consumption is not just even locally damaging on local resources or could be damaging on global resources, we're actually at a point, uh, again, if you believe the science, where if we don't radically change our behavior, and a lot of the behavior is around the consumption of resources, we won't actually have a planet that is sustainable. And it's not somewhere down the road this is possibly true. Within 10 years, 15 years, if we keep going the way we are, we need a radical intervention. And it could come just through willpower, but I think this practice also shows people that there's a way to be very content. And that contentment is an ease of simply being versus getting lost in consumption. What I would recommend is finding something like uh, this sheet, and you can practice with it when you wake up in the morning, come to a place where you might do your sitting practice, or a place where you can just be collected enough to drop in. And you can make up your own sheet if you find this one doesn't resonate with you. But the nice thing about this sheet is it has appropriate refuges, things that actually do deliver a sense of security and refuge. It has the precepts on it. It has vows of presence, of seeking what disturbs us. And it also has a number of beautiful qualities and you could take one a month and say, I'm going to explore this as an intention. What is it like to be more generous and to consider people's welfare and participate in that? It's usually easier to do uh, dozens of little acts of generosity than one big box checking act of generosity. But if you can do big acts of generosity, help somebody move from one house to another, that's great. Uh, or help somebody uh, on their hard day. Spend time with somebody who's grieving. Uh, take care of someone's cat or dog when they're traveling. Uh, any way you can participate in somebody else's well-being, you can do that. Or you can take on sila. You can take on renunciation to see if you can go through a month with less consumption. Developing wisdom, living with wisdom and understanding, living with courage, 
Again, these are all beautiful qualities. You can see which ones draw you in. And you can also just work with these four of the Brown Viharas. You could make up your own sheet that just has, I want to live closer to these four beautiful qualities and understand how they work as a system. If you don't connect to this, your day will be taken over by the events of the day and it will define you. So define your day before the events do, before the sense of responsibilities do. And just like being present and saying the phrases, uh, no matter what the context is the first priority, and then you do it when sitting or walking or when eating or doing a job or going for a walk, you can do just as many things, but you have a preceding intention that you invite yourself to uh, go through the day. Very last thing I'll say uh, is that after, even, after, even after working with these for many years, I just learned that the, um, the word dana has a, a, a line over the A. As a collective process, whenever you're sharing something, you can say, hey, this is dana. You can put out uh, cough drops or you can put out something where you're giving it. You can leave food and say, hey, dana. But if you don't put the line over the A, then all of Dana's food will be eaten. <laughs> and so there have been a few people named Dana who've come in and have tried to keep their food separate and have written Dana on the jar. And someone goes, oh my God, this person's so generous. Look at this, there's all this free cheese. And I'm like, this is organic chocolate. I mean, they're like, wow, someone's so generous. And all those named Dana don't understand why they're the one people, every, one person everybody is taking from without asking. So one little wisdom thing is to put a line over the A, uh, and that makes it Donna instead of poor Dana. Let's just sit for a moment. So tune your heart to take a vow of determination that as you go forward into future experiences, you'll explore a beautiful quality of heart in that experience. It could be patience or loving kindness, mindful presence, being attuned to cultivate well-being in yourself or others, or in harm reduction. There are many beautiful qualities and let's not get lost in how many there are. Let's see which ones inspire us and let that be the values that guide us.
So one more walking and one more evening of chanting and practice together. May you savor it without greediness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.